because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true, but the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. There will be no lies. We will honor the American people with the truth and nothing else. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. So we finally got, after three and a half years, the long-awaited Senate Intelligence Committee report on Russian links to the Trump campaign. This is the fifth and final installment in this sprawling investigation by the uh, Senate Intelligence Committee. I have to say, I was not expecting that much after all, after Mueller, after all the previous investigations. And I was surprised because there was some really damning new details in this report that we hadn't seen before. Yeah, I don't, you know, I don't know what's more surprising and what's more newsworthy. Uh, the underlying, you know, revelations in the report, like the assertion that uh, Konstantin Kalimnik, it was an actual agent of Russian intelligence. Russian intelligence officer is what the report said. That's right. Just to be clear, so our listeners know, Kalimnik was the top aide for years to Paul Manafort, who was the chairman of the Trump campaign. And, um, you know, the committee lays out all these associations that Manafort and Kalimnik had done over the years advancing Russian government interests, not just in Ukraine, but in Montenegro as well. The ties to Oleg Deripaska, the billionaire aluminum magnate, a pro-Putin oligarch, how Manafort and Kalimnik worked for years to advance the interests of Deripaska and Putin. The report also says that there are indications that Kalimnik was um, directly involved in the Russian hack and leak campaign. And this is this is a guy that Manafort, the campaign manager, is meeting with regularly and providing internal polling data too. So it's pretty extraordinary. I, I was just, just, just to go back to the, what, just to close the loop on what I was saying at the start, which was that is, those are all fascinating revelations. I, I do think it is also worth noting because this is, you know, what we call a man bites dog story, that it was actually a bipartisan report. It was signed on to by both the Republicans and the Democrats in this day and age. That is extraordinary. It is extraordinary. Now, of course, you have the remarkable spin by uh, Marco Rubio, the acting chairman of the committee, and the Republicans saying that their takeaway from this is absolutely no collusion. We'll ask our uh, guest, Senator uh, King, about that in a moment. But I just want to read just a couple of passages because I, they kind of kind of blew me away to see in a bipartisan report. Manafort is the campaign chair. Uh, he has all these ties to 
the uh, Russian government, having been funded by the pro-Russia political party in Ukraine for years, having these ties to Kalimnik, with whom he is sharing internal campaign polling data. The committee found, this is the bipartisan report, found that Manafort's presence on the campaign and proximity to Trump created opportunities for Russian intelligence services to exert influence over and acquire confidential information on the Trump campaign. Taken as a whole, Manafort's high-level access and willingness to share information with individuals closely affiliated with the Russian intelligence services, particularly Kalimnik and associates of Oleg Deripaska, represented a grave counterintelligence threat. So there you have it from the uh, bipartisan report of the Senate Intelligence Committee. And to me, the significance of this is the last piece of this we're waiting for is the John Durham report that Barr has commissioned at the Justice Department. It seems to me it's going to be really hard to conclude that the FBI didn't have a completely valid reason to open up that counterintelligence probe in the summer of 2016. Well, I wouldn't be surprised if, as we are speaking right now, the president isn't tapping out on his uh, phone, which hunt. But it, it will be, I think, harder for this is going to make things harder for Bill Barr, who has called the Russia investigation bogus when these conclusions have been signed off on by the Republicans. You know, what impact it has uh, over the long term is hard to say. It is interesting that this is coming out so soon before uh, the election, and maybe Durham will have the last word, but uh, these are pretty important revelations, I think. All right, well, we've got Senator Angus King, uh, the independent senator from Maine, on board to talk about all this, so let's get to it. We are now joined by Senator Angus King of Maine, a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senator, welcome to Skullduggery. Good to be with you. Good to be with you, Michael. So quite a report that uh, the committee released yesterday, nearly a thousand pages, lots of new uh, information we hadn't seen before goes beyond what was in Robert Mueller's report. And one of the striking things about this is, uh, once again, we have split screen America, Senator Rubio, the acting chairman and the Republicans say that their takeaway from the report is there was absolutely no collusion between the Trump campaign and the Kremlin. Democrats uh, filed additional views. Uh, saying this is what collusion looks like. What's your takeaway? Well, I'm not sure Marco Rubio read the same report I did, because when you have the chair of the campaign, Paul Manafort, sitting down with a Russian intelligence agent and giving him detailed internal polling data, I, you know, I, I don't want to get into what's collusion, what's cooperation, what's conspiracy, but it was certainly a link between the Trump campaign and the, the Russian intelligence services. Now, one of the most important things here is that when people see polling data, they think, you know, Hillary's up by two or Trump is up by one or whatever. No, to a politician, internal polling data is a roadmap to the campaign. It's, it's the blueprint. It's how you're doing with certain demographics, how you're doing in certain geographic areas, where are the battleground states, what are the issues that are working and not working. So when you're talking about handing over internal polling data to a Russian agent in August of an election year, you know, I don't know how you can, anybody can say that's not some kind of important 
and serious and disturbing link. And then, of course, you have the famous Trump Tower meeting where Donald Trump Jr. emails when he's told there'll be some dirt on Hillary. He says, I love it. If, it, if it's what you say it is, I love it, and perhaps we can use it in the fall. So Mueller decided it didn't rise to the level of a criminal conspiracy, I think probably because they couldn't establish an explicit agreement, which is one of the elements of conspiracy. There has to be an agreement. And in this case, it was more a sort of course of conduct. I remember from law school a term called conscious parallelism where you have two entities that are both working in the same direction, they know what the other's doing, they see a mutual benefit, and I think that's probably a better way to characterize what was going on here. It sounds like you're saying, Senator, that the collusion was implicit, not explicit. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, I, it doesn't appear, at least we couldn't establish it, that there was an explicit agreement where somebody sat down in a room and said, okay, we're going to do this and you do that. It was more of a evolving sort of course of conduct that, that went as the thing unfolded. But Paul Manafort was at the, at the heart of it. And another example is the phone call in the automobile where Donald Trump is on the way to LaGuardia with Rick Gates sitting with him in the car. Donald Trump takes a call from, from Roger Stone. And when he finishes the call, he turns to Rick Gates and says, there's going to be more information coming from WikiLeaks. Well, that indicates a couple of things. One, they knew WikiLeaks was involved in this. Two, they had advanced knowledge of what was coming. And three, the candidate himself knew about it. Uh, so it's a pretty damning set of facts, in my view. Uh, Senator, just picking up on the Roger Stone matter, the president, of course, under oath in his written replies to Mueller, said he did not recall speaking to Stone during the campaign about the releases of WikiLeaks. Given the phone call trail that phone records that you got, the Gates testimony, the emails showing that uh, Stone was drafting tweets for Trump at Trump's request uh, relating to uh, the Russians. What is your view of the president's sworn testimony that he did not recall any of this? Well, it's sort of odd because as you recall, as you recall, on numerous <laughs> yeah. occasions, the president has touted his incredible memory, uh, that he just remembers any, everything and everything and uh, anything. And, and I think uh, in this case, you know, he had a memory lapse. When somebody says, I don't recall, it's hard to call that a, an untruthful statement, but it's a little hard to uh, swallow given the what appears to be a trail of these kinds of communications. And, and then, of course, he... He was, again, Donald Trump always says things out loud. Later in the campaign, he kept, at every rally, he talked about WikiLeaks and how he loved WikiLeaks and WikiLeaks was releasing these things. And so it's, it's on the record. So people ultimately are going to have to make their own decision. Was the president lying in your view? I, I rarely, if ever, use that word because I don't know what was in his head at the time. I think he was, uh, I don't think he was being fully forthcoming. I'll put it that way. Well, would you do you think the president should have been investigated for making false statements in those answers to the Mueller team? Well, it's hard to say it's a false statement if he says I don't recall that. There's no way to prove that one way or the other. If he if he 
if he had said flatly, I never talked to Roger Stone, and then there was a transcript of a call or something along those lines, you'd have a different situation. But when he, he said, I don't recall, that's a, that's a defense that, gee, there may have been a conversation now that you refreshed my recollection, but I think you, you just have to take that as how he uh, was not prepared to make a direct statement. Senator, you mentioned uh, Paul Manafort, you know, being at the heart of, of all of this, whether it's a conspiracy or a, just an implicit deal. Uh, and one of the ways that you advance our knowledge of his role is in his relationship with uh, Konstantin Kalimnik. And the report explicitly says that Kalimnik was a, uh, a Russian agent. Previously, the FBI had just said uh, had ties to uh, Russian intelligence. And moreover, the report suggests or says that there are indications that Kalimnik was involved in the hack and dump uh, campaign. But the evidence is pretty much entirely blacked out. How confident are you of the evidence that you saw? And, you know, what do you do when you're trying to build confidence for an investigation like this when all of the evidence is blacked out? Well, as you can imagine, there's a long process. When we finished the report several months ago, I, I probably four or five months ago, there's this long process with the Office of the Director of National Intelligence about redactions. And the redactions, which you refer to, are, are supposed to be only to protect sources and methods, to ensure that an adversary can't reverse engineer the statement to figure out how we knew what we know. And that's a legitimate concern. That's not a that's not a made-up problem. That's that's something you have to pay attention to when when you're talking about the revealing of, of intelligence information. On the other hand, redactions to avoid embarrassment or to avoid political problems are are not legitimate. It turns into a negotiation. Uh, the negotiation, for example, remember the torture report that we did. Uh, two or three years ago, that was a long and difficult negotiation with the White House and the National Institute, the uh, Director of National Intelligence, on what should be redacted in that report. So there's no, there's nothing uh, unusual about that kind of negotiation, but it is unfortunate when it it obscures what we know. Now, for example, the Roger Stone conversation with Donald Trump that Rick Gates recounted is in the Mueller report. But most of that is redacted because it doesn't talk about Roger Stone because his trial hadn't occurred yet. Now he's had his trial. He's had his uh, finding and, and been convicted. We got rid of that redaction. So we know it was Roger Stone that Donald Trump was talking to. But would we have a fuller picture without the redactions? Yes. But there, it is necessary in some cases, and I'm not going to argue individual cases, uh, it is necessary to protect sources and methods so that the information that we have, we can continue to get. Well, just uh, just one quick follow-up on that. Would you say that the DNI's negotiations on these issues and all these questions about sources and methods were done in entirely done in good faith? Or do you believe, at least to some extent, they were asserting sources and methods because they wanted to protect the president or avoid embarrassment? I would like to be able to answer that question directly. I can't because I wasn't the one doing the negotiating. I, it was mostly the senior staff of the committee, and I know that there was there were negotiations that went right up to the, the day before the report was released. We thought it was going to be released Monday, and there were negotiations that went on apparently all day, but I can't really comment. I, I, I 
it wouldn't be honest if I said, yeah, they were trying to cover things up or they were doing it totally straight up. I, I just I just can't answer that question. Fair enough. Senator, uh, a lot of us were skeptical that on an issue this divisive, uh, the 2016 campaign, we'd ever see uh, a bipartisan report that both Republicans and Democrats uh, signed on to. And yet here it is. I understand it was adopted by voice vote, but can you take us inside a little and tell us, uh, was there real unanimity on the uh, wording of this report? Were some of your Republican colleagues trying to get passages uh, deleted? Were some of your Democratic colleagues trying to get uh, some of the language more fulsome? How were you able to pull off a bipartisan report? Well, first, I want to say I'm, I'm proud of the fact that we were able to pull it off. Uh, this has been a bipartisan process start to finish. And I have to get a, give a lot of credit to Richard Burr and Mark Warner. They worked together really well. And, and Burr stood up, I, I believe, I don't have direct knowledge of this, but I think he was under some pressure. And of course, he was not the chair when this final piece of the report was released. That was Marco Rubio. And I, I can't talk about the details of the, what went on in the committee room, but I can tell you there was a voice vote. Uh, there was one dissenting vote. I'm not going to tell you who it was. But Can you say Republican or Democrat? I, mean, I got to tell you. I, was I, was I, the dissenter nice a Republican or Democrat? <laughs> okay. Or an independent? <laughs> you, you can, it's your job to ask the question and my job to not answer. <laughs> okay. uh, but uh, but uh, no, it was... It was, uh, I, I was skeptical as well that we, when we got to this final portion, it would be, it would be more difficult to, to hold a bipartisan majority. Uh, but the, you know, the, the other sections of the report, if you read them, express a, a pretty fair amount of conclusions based upon the research that was done. This one is much more just here it is. Here's what happened. And here are the facts. And, and had we gone further to have a, a series of really firm conclusions, there was collusion, there was cooperation, or there wasn't, I think that would have been more difficult to get, get the uh, almost unanimous vote uh, that we got. But I, I think it's important for the American people that this report was bipartisan, that they, can, they, that they, can't, they, they can't dismiss it as a, you know, as a whitewash or as an uh, unfair indictment. I mean, they, they can read it and read those provisions and, and say, yeah, this doesn't look good to me, or, gee, it's not, it's not as bad as some people say. To me, what really, I've, I've concluded what went on here, and I, I can't remember if I've used this term before in this interview, but the, the term I remember from law school is conscious parallelism. It's a term that's used in antitrust law where you can't prove an explicit agreement, but what it appears is that two sides were working consciously toward the same goals and exchanging beneficial information. And that, that appears to be what, what happened here. I don't think there was ever a time when people sat down at a table and said, okay, here's the agreement. But there was this continuous exchange of information, polling data, WikiLeaks information that, you know, it served both sides' interests. The Russians wanted to help Donald Trump. Donald Trump wanted to win. And in the, in the process, the Russians also got the added benefit of disrupting our democracy uh, and causing harm to the country. So it, that, that's, I think that's a fairer description of what went on than, the, than that there was 
you know, this dark, uh, dark room somewhere where people signed an agreement. I don't, I don't think that happened. I think it kind of evolved and the Russian view of it kind of evolved as they went on. It started out that they were simply hostile. Uh, I believe they were hostile to Hillary Clinton and then evolved a kind of support for Donald Trump. Senator, is this in some ways that your investigation, the final word on the Russia case? I mean, there there are no other uh, investigations. Well, there's uh, the there's the Durham investigation that, well, that's uh, still right, yeah. hanging over this, and I, I think a lot of us are 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 waiting for that to see what he's uh, you know what, where that's going. But it seems to me, Senator, I'd like your view on this that it's going to be much harder for Durham and Barr to conclude that the FBI did not have a valid reason to open up a counterintelligence investigation in the summer of. 2016, given all these damning new details you have laid out in this report. Do you agree? Yeah, I, I agree with you. And, and uh, you know, I've been living with this now for almost four years. And there are a couple of things. One of the things, important point, it, it seems to me, on this idea that the FBI, and there was this conspiracy to try to hurt Donald Trump to cost him the election. The fundamental failure of that argument is they never pulled the trigger. If they were investigating the Trump campaign in order to undermine the campaign, they never, it never got leaked. It never got out. It, there wasn't a breath about any relationship between Trump and the Russians. We didn't even know about what the Russians were, were really up to until the, the mid to late summer. And then there was a public announcement in October it had nothing to do with the Trump campaign. So the, the fatal flaw, it seems to me, in the argument that this was somehow an effort to derail the Trump campaign is that it, it they never did it. They, you know, if anybody can say that the FBI derailed their campaign, it was Hillary Clinton. Yeah. That said, Senator, there's quite a bit in the report about the Steele dossier and the FBI's handling of it uh, and failure to uh, vet it properly. Your uh, view on the Steele dossier and how the FBI handled the matter? Well, my, my understanding is that the Steele dossier was not a, a, the basis or a basis for opening the counterintelligence investigation in the summer of 2016. It's hard to tell the extent to which it was in the background, it was in people's thinking, but I, I think the best reference for this is Michael Horowitz's hundred and some odd page uh, Inspector General's report on this identical question, where he indeed found fault with some of the things the FBI did with the FISA uh, court, with Carter Page and those. But he, his ultimate conclusion was unequivocal that, A, there was a sufficient basis upon which to launch the investigation, and B, that it wasn't politically motivated. That was this is the the Trump administration inspector general of the Justice Department found that about about two years ago, based upon all the information that we've seen, I think it would have been prosecutorial malpractice to have not simply opened an investigation, said, what's going on here? This is worrisome. And it's worrisome if people have relationship with the Russians that also have relationships with the campaign, they would be subject to blackmail. They would be subject to to pressure, and therefore that would compromise national security. They had to open this investigation. And again, if it was being done for political purposes, it never happened. They never did it. It never came out until way after the election. So Horowitz, I, I rest on Horowitz. I mean, he did 
an extensive investigation. He's very well respected. He's one of the few inspector generals still standing, and he found it wasn't politically motivated and that it had a sufficient basis upon which to proceed. And, and I think in the report we just released, uh, I think, you know, a thousand pages of evidence of, of these various relationships, I think, just undergird uh, the conclusion that it was a, uh, an appropriate thing to at least investigate. Uh, I just want to ask you, after three years of work, this thousand page report, the extraordinary fact that it is a bipartisan report that we talked about a moment ago, what impact do you hope the report will have. And um, given where we started out this conversation, the split screen America that Mike alluded to, how hopeful are you that a report like this really can have an impact going forward? Well, of course, the ultimate decision on all of these matters will be made November 3rd. And, and, and let, me, let me stop there for a minute and go back to the summer of 2016. I'm on a, on a mission to press the intelligence community to tell the American people in real time what they know and learn about attempts to interfere in our election. One of the faults I have for what went on in 2016 is that I believe the Obama administration was, was too timid in the sense of not being forthcoming with what they were learning in the summer of 2016 and into the fall. Obama wanted it to be bipartisan. You know, there's a famous story, Mitch McConnell wouldn't sign the letter. But I think the public should know what's being learned. The intelligence community, you know, they're instinctively secretive. I mean, that's their business is secrets. But they also view their customer or customers as the president, National Security Advisor, Secretary of Defense, certain members of Congress. That's who their customers for their information. And why? Because those people need intelligence in order to make good decisions. In my view, the voters are the policymakers on November 3rd. They're the decision makers, and they're entitled to the information that was collected with their tax dollars, again, accepting not compromising sources and methods. And that's why I think it was important important that about two weeks ago, Bill Avenina announced publicly that the Russians were engaged, maybe also China, maybe also Iran. And what I'm pressing is that should be a regular process right up through the issue. So the American people know what's going on. They're the ultimate decision makers here. Uh, Senator, one last question. I want to switch gears. You mentioned November 3rd. Uh, tell us how things look up there in Maine right now. First in the presidential, I think you have one congressional district that does historically lean Republican and uh, pro-Trump. Uh, and then also uh, the Senate race, your colleague Susan Collins' re-election. How's it look to you right now? Well, I'm not going to really talk about the, the Senate race. I've declared my steadfast neutrality in that race. But as far as the presidential campaign, uh, Donald Trump has a lot of support, particularly in the second district, as you mentioned. I remember in 2016 driving around up there, a, a, a sign of what's going on in the election is how many homemade lawn signs do you see? And I saw a lot of homemade Trump pen signs along the side of the road in, in northern Maine in 2016. I haven't, because of the coronavirus, I haven't been out as much this year, so I can't give you that, uh, the, uh, the king uh, sign roadside <laughs> poll. But 
he carried the second district, I think, by about 10 points last time, but lost the state by three or four points. Barack Obama carried Maine by 12 points, and I think Hillary Clinton carried it by three. So it indicates it, it tightened up. How that stands now, of course, that's, I think, the, the question facing the whole country are, you know, all those people that voted for him before uh, going to vote for him again, having watched him perform. And, and many of them are, I'm, I'm sure. Uh, there used to be a, uh, a saying uh, many years ago, as Maine goes, so goes the country. So um, I think we're going to check back with you on the King poll, uh, sign poll as well, we get closer well, to uh, know, November 3rd. There, there's a funny saying, the, there's a funny thing about the old saying of as Maine goes, so goes the nation. In 1936, Maine and Vermont were the only states to vote for Alf Landon against Roosevelt. Uh, so the saying right. at that time was, as Maine goes, so goes Vermont. So. Right. Okay. All right. The, well, other, Senator, the, other, the other story yeah. from, Michael, let me tell you one other story from that, from that election you'll enjoy. There was a coastal community with about 100 people, staunchly Republican. Maine was totally Republican in those days. And the clerk read the, the town, all the townspeople were in the, in the room and she read the results. She said, 98 for Landon, two for Roosevelt. And somebody in the back of the room said, the son of a bitch voted twice. <laughs> That's a good story. Okay. Well, voter fraud, a- fraud, voter fraud. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> all right. Senator, thanks a lot. We really appreciate you uh, joining us. Thank you. And thanks for your good work. Keep it up.